The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at updates from across the battlefront, analyse the alleged Russian plan to sabotage European energy, and we discuss the militarisation of Russian society and ask what it means for the country's future. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 19th of April. One year and 54 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and former tank commander and telegraph commentator Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. We start with a slightly odd report coming out of the Russian installed council down in Zaporizhia region. So a guy called Vladimir Rogov. Don't think we've heard of him before. Uh, He's a member of the council, the Russian installed council in Zaporizhia. He has said a group of Ukrainian armed forces tried to probe the defence around the town of Orokiv, which is about 40 k's southeast of Zaporizhia last night. He says, Rogov said it was unusual for Ukrainian forces to test Russian defences during the night, but said it was due to what he says was new nighttime equipment. Now, I say this is odd because if there'd been some major breakthrough, we'd have heard about it. And if there'd been some major defeat, we would have heard about it in glowing terms from from Russia. So I don't see I'm not sure what the purpose of this is. I mean, there's likely to be probing up and down the line from both sides, looking for the uh, looking for the gaps, t- testing the defences, seeing what the dis- dispositions and strengths of the enemy are. So I, I don't think the the attack, such as it is, such as it seems to be, is anything to be surprised about. And as for this new nighttime equipment, well, I mean, it might be night vision goggles for the individual soldiers, maybe thermal imaging for the for the individual or for any vehicles they've got. They could be they could be thermal or, or um, night vision devices for for vehicles and other weapons. But you know, I just make the point that, that if it had been significant in either way, a, a massive defeat or or a huge breakthrough, we would have heard about it through other channels and to greater depth. So, yep, yeah, Mark and move on. We uh, we expect this up and down the line. This obviously this is this region Zaporizhia. It's down to the southwest of Bakhmut and Avdivka, where the the main fighting has been of late. I mean that that is on the route. If you wanted to push through there, you would you would head towards Melitopol and the coast. So as we've said, and not not just us, but many other commentators have said for weeks now, that would be a very sensible way for for Ukraine to try and attack to get through to the coast that way, splitting Russian defences into two: one in Crimea and just the area just to, immediately to the north, and then one in the Donbass. But of course, Russia knows this. I mean, they are they are building defences in the region. So, you know, I don't think we can we can what if for endlessly on on the very little information we have. So, I think we just mark and move on on that. Secondly, Ukraine last night said it had come under attack in the Odessa region. Said it had shot down ten Russian kamikaze drones. So, this comes from General Mykola Olinshuk, who's the commander of the Ukrainian Air Force. He said ten or twelve Iranian-made Shahid one three six drones, the ones we've seen throughout this uh, the full-scale invasion, had been destroyed by the Odessa air defences overnight in the attack on the on the southern city, the, the port city there on the south coast. I, I mean, there's no reports of casualties yet, but if you look at the imagery that we're carrying on our website and will be elsewhere, I mean, there's a lot of destruction, and I'd be surprised if, if there are no casualties that come come from that. I mean, we had we had thought that Russia was was trying to hang on to its... It's missile stocks. It's it's drone stocks. We I was in a, in fact Joe was there as well. We were in a, in a, a briefing yesterday with a Western official who was who was suggesting that Russia actually is is withholding its stocks of these types of munitions in anticipation of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. 
And actually, the Western officials said that that has given Ukraine some breathing space. They've not had to expend their air defense munitions because there's nothing coming at them from the other way. So, you know, there's a, a bit of kind of air defense cat and mouse going on at the moment. The 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 proposed or the the anticipated counteroffensive is really and this is of course exactly what Ukraine want to do it's really playing with planners minds because you've got a you've got a war game it you've got a second guess it you've got to come up with a a comp plan a contingency plan then you've got to have a a comp plan for that one and you've got to war game it to the nth degree so you know you can easily spin yourself up in circles here which is why planning staffs need to make sensible logical deductions and then someone make a decision on that and, and go for it i was always told in the military that you know make a decision or, or or sorry make the right decision or make a make the wrong decision but just make a decision the cost the penalty of inaction and dithering and, and being indecisive is often much worse than making a wrong decision action galvanizes people even if it turns out that you're you're doing the wrong thing just the energy and the, the things in, in motion you can actually it's easier to shift the focus of a of a failed or a, a failing um, effort rather than try and start from from scratch anyway I, I digress the last point i'll make is um reports from alexei reznikov ukraine's defense minister he says that ukraine has re- received its first batteries of patriot air defense missiles most some of the most advanced air defense systems in the world so he's tweeted today our beautiful ukrainian sky becomes more secure because patriot air defense systems have arrived in ukraine our air defenders have mastered them as fast as they could and our partners have kept their word and he then went on to thank american german and dutch or the american german and dutch people not just not just three people at random but you know the american german and dutch people because we think what what, what we think ukraine is being gifted is one battery of patriots each from from the US and Germany and then two batteries from the Netherlands. So patriots just to quick quickly go over these again we talk, talked about them some weeks ago when the announcement was made that they were going to be gifted and the the training the US was was training about I think about 100 people from from the Ukrainian armed forces in uh, the US were training them in Germany. So patriots got about 150k range but that is obviously best case so sort of straight line and at a high flying target so high flying targets the tupolevs that are flying the big russian tupolev tu-22ms that are flying over russia and firing these long-range cruise missiles over russian airspace they're not coming over ukrainian airspace they're firing from the the kursk region the belgorod region just to the north and northeast of ukraine so you know it might make those forces think twice if they know there's a patriot out there somewhere Unlikely because the the suggestion that that um, as controversial as it may be, but the suggestion that Ukraine would use American gifted weapons to fire into Russia is still seen as as quite controversial. So I don't know if those those Tupolev bombers would be under immediate threat, but it's enough to put a seed of doubt into the uh, into the pilots' minds and into the into the planners' minds. I mean, a, a lower flying aircraft would be able to get much closer just simply because of the way that, that the radar works. But the point to make is that, that Ukraine, Ukrainian air defense so far has, has relied very heavily on S-300, the old, the old air defense missiles that it inherited from the Soviet Union. S-300, it, it's old, so it's less accurate, less advanced from systems like, like Patriots. Ukraine's also got the RST from Germany and the NASAMs, again, from the US and Norway, I think, from memory. And those three, Patriot, RST, NASAMs, can share radar, share target data. So they're much more advanced systems. Okay, So it's much better to have these than the, than the dwindling stocks of S3, S300s, which we think, we think Ukraine's running out of anyway. And Alexei Reznikov, the final point here, he said in the past, he didn't say today about the Patriots, but in the past he's made the point, he said, in the future, we plan to integrate this system, that's the Patriots, in the NATO air and missile defense system. This will bring us closer to NATO, to our membership in the alliance. So, you know, never miss an opportunity to get the uh, get the point in there about Ukrainian aspirations for NATO membership. But it is, a, it is an important point that even if NATO membership might be some way off, the more Ukrainian military systems are integrated and, and you know, fundamentally knitted into down at the code level NATO systems, then then we're starting to talk about security guarantees. So they might not be in NATO. They might not have NATO Article 5 protection. But if they're in the big system and sharing data and getting in, intelligence sent to them on the, um, you know, in this case, air defence, but it works for other systems as well, then you know, that, that's not for naught. Don't overlook that. That, it, that has a significant military value in its own right. And I'll take a breath there. 
Thank you very much for that, uh, Dom. Joe and Francis, there's quite a few political and diplomatic updates. So, um, Francis, can I come to you first? What have you been looking at? Well, thanks, David. I know listeners will be on tenterhooks for an update on the grain deal. Well, I have one, followed by a story of Russian ships being accused of North Sea sabotage and some further updates on the Pentagon leaks. But on the grain deal, Ukraine's agriculture minister has confirmed that the transit of Ukrainian grain and food products will resume through Poland following an agreement reached in talks with Warsaw. Now, that was ongoing yesterday, which I reported on. Now, we understand that uh, this agriculture minister has raised concerns about the status of the agreement with Moscow on the safe passage of ships carrying grain from Ukrainian Black Sea ports. He said it may be impossible to predict how many vessels Moscow would allow through. But nonetheless, the agreement that's been reached with Poland is a positive step after all of the shenanigans over the weekend of certain countries essentially blocking the grain entering their respective countries for fear of what it will do to the food markets there. I think Bulgaria may still have a temporary block, but um, we'll have to monitor that closely. Interestingly, inspections of ships transporting Ukraine grain have resumed under the UN brokered agreement, despite Russia being accused by Ukraine of delaying inspections, which led to a halt in grain shipments at the same time this was going on. This has been a long-term issue and will continue, I'm sure, because, of course, the leverage that Russia gets from this grain deal is substantial, as I touched on yesterday. And so I think we can expect this to be a continuing saga for as long as it benefits both sides for it to be so. And that is the current state of things in the diplomatic sphere. And so I expect this will be something that we will have to continue to return to. But nonetheless, some positive steps from where we were yesterday on that story. Now, staying with ships, a fascinating read on the BBC website today about Russian ships accused of North Sea Sabotage. Now, Russia, according to them, have, and it's a big investigation, and I'll come to who's involved in it in a moment. But the the central headline of this is that Russia has a program to sabotage wind farms and communication cables in the North Sea, according to new allegations. So the details have come from a joint investigation by public broadcasters in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, where I know we have many listeners. It says that Russia has a fleet of vessels disguised as fishing trawlers and research vessels in the North Sea. They apparently carry underwater surveillance equipment and are mapping key sites for possible sabotage. Now, the BBC understands that UK officials are aware of Russian vessels moving around UK waters as part of this programme. And the first of this series of reports is due to be broadcast on Wednesday by DR in Denmark, NRK in Norway, SVT in Sweden and AYLE in Finland. Now, a Danish counteroffensive officer who's cited in the BBC piece says that the sabotage plans are being prepared in case of a full conflict with the West, whilst the head of Norwegian intelligence has told the broadcasters that the programme was considered highly important for Russia and controlled directly from Moscow. The broadcasters say that they've analysed intercepted Russian communications which indicate so-called ghost ships sailing in Nordic waters, which have turned off their transmitters so as not to reveal their locations. And more broadly, this, this report really raises the possibilities of these vessels being linked with numerous incidents, which we've actually reported on in the past, quite often as fleeting references, because we don't know much more at the time, of, of incidents of apparent sabotage and disruption. There was an incident south of, uh, I think it's Salvald, or last year when an underwater data cable was cut. Um, there was the Shetland Islands in October last year when a cable was cut. And in both of those incidents, there was believed to be foreign meddling involved. And it would appear that these investigations point the, uh, the, the finger at these Russian vessels. In the case of the, uh, the Shetlands one, it was quite significant because it cut off communication activity on the islands and was considered a, a direct violation of all sorts of international rules if it was of foreign agents involved. So a very interesting story, this, and I imagine there'll be some further revelations to come as the programmes are broadcast. But I know that, that our other guests today will, will also have some thoughts on this, David. Thanks, Francis. Yes, Joe, do you want to come in and add anything to that? Yeah, um, so on these ghost ships, it's not a new issue that's been raised by this broadcast investigation. What they have done, though, is they've managed to get, and I've done the piece for a line and it will hopefully go in the paper as the day develops but they've got this fantastic 
picture of a man in a balaclava with a military-grade rifle, which is on board this. It's called the Admiral Vladimirsky, which is officially an oceanic research vessel, but it was identified by the broadcast investigation as one of the main protagonist ships, one of these 50 ships that are Russian, likely with their transponders or transmitters turned off, operating in the North Sea. The Dutch equivalent of MI5 and MI6, called AIVD, they earlier this year warned that Russian ships were caught mapping installations in the North Sea. And so these are installations that are very close to British shores, but also our allies in the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, then up to Finland. So it's, it's a really crunch bit. And then I'm, I'll just add a little bit to the grain debate because the European Commission has intervened earlier today and Ursula von der Leyen has written to the five Eastern European governments, basically annoyed at the prospect of cheap Ukrainian grain affecting their farmers and promised a 100 million euro aid package for their farmers. Um, we don't know how that's going to work, but what we do know is going to be there to support the farmers in the likes of Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria. And that comes on top of, a, of I think it was 46 million euros offered to them earlier this year. But we were, so I sat for a European Commission press briefing today on it, and they didn't quite have the details nailed down. I think we're going to learn more today and tomorrow about what the, because they talked about these plans, like, could there be countermeasures? Could it mean that tariffs eventually come on grain? Because currently Ukraine has free, quota-free and tariff-free access to the EU's market. Does that mean grain could be hit by a small quota if it stays in Poland or, or the like? But we don't know yet. That's So that's kind of speculation. And I will stop there because I believe Francis has a few more diplomatic updates. Thanks, Joe. Yes. There's just one other story I thought we should uh, draw attention to, which is an interesting read in the FT about the latest on the Pentagon leaks. Now, the piece is called How a Low-Ranked 21-Year-Old Access Top U.S. Secrets. And essentially, it looks through the background of this individual, Jack head who has, of course, been subject to some scrutiny in recent days. Now, he held one of the military's lowest enlist ranks and was essentially an IT worker in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. But even so, he received top secret clearance to maintain and secure the Air Force's various computer networks, including some of its most sensitive ones. And what the FT have done is they've looked at how these units operate and how he would have access to this kind of material. His unit, the 102nd Intelligence Wing, processes intelligence for U.S. military commands and is one of about half a dozen Air National Guard intelligence users carrying out similar work. Now, he's not believed to have prepared any of this intelligence, but apparently he was able to have access to it and print it without triggering, triggering any alarm bells. Uh, even in a role, one four intelligence official that they cite in the article likened, likened to that of a janitor. So he says, we've got a low-level people who have had access to stuff because we're not going to have a four-star general emptying waste, basket, waste baskets and cleaning desks. That's according to the former officials. So essentially underlining this point that these people are sort of tidying up these documents and so helping organise them, etc. And that's how they have access to them, much like a, say, janitor would in an office. But of course, it's quite dangerous. And the piece goes on and talks about one challenge for the Pentagon is that its ranks are largely made up of young people. More than two thirds of active duty service members are 30 or under, who increasingly live online, particularly since the COVID-19 pandemic left many sort of feeling isolated or unable to work. Now, the leaks have prompted the US government to launch several probes to determine how it shares information and who can access it, as well as how the disclosures may have harmed national security. So this is an ongoing story, but I think the isolation point that they raise is particularly interesting. I remember attending a private event where a very senior figure from the British intelligence services argued that the lockdowns would serve as a breeding grounds for subversion. The nature of so many people driven online makes people more easily corruptible, radicalized, or simply careless. And in a similar vein, I was visiting a major government department recently, I won't say which one, where I was surprised at how few 
civil servants worked in the office as opposed to from home. And I, I couldn't help but wonder about the psychological impact of that. Is one as likely to be as loyal to one's colleagues, one's country, if you're doing all of your work over Zoom? There's something, it's a rather ephemeral platform. There's a, there's a slight hint of unreality about it. If you're doing the same, you know, if you're conducting sensitive work on using the same software that you do to buy your groceries or do to talk to friends does it undermine the importance of that work and in your in your own mind as opposed to if it was printed on a document in front of you with official heading I don't know but I it's something I've been re reflecting on but I thought it was an interesting point that was raised in the context of this article but just lastly on the theme of Pentagon leaks we touched briefly on this in the past but I just wanted to draw attention to it again in more detail according to one of the leaks the UK is among a number of countries with military special forces operating inside Ukraine. According to the document, which is dated the 23rd of March, the UK has the largest contingent of special forces in Ukraine, around 50, followed by fellow neighbor NATO states Latvia, 17, France, 15, the US, 14, and the Netherlands, 1. I'd love to know what that chap's doing, but anyway. The document does not say where the forces are located or what they are doing. We've suspected for a while now that NATO troops may be involved in disrupting GRU office, officers operating in Poland, but nothing concrete before this that they're operating in Ukraine. So it's an interesting story and one that, of course, Russian commentators have been quick to pick up on. But I just wanted to draw attention to it because it's something that in the context of the leaks, there's so much to cover, we've not covered in depth. So I just wanted to, to make a reference to it, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Joe Barnes, can we come to you? There's two stories you've written up, which I think are both fascinating. One of them is based on one of the Pentagon leaks. Let's let's put that to one side for the moment. Can we go back into Europe? You've written you've written up a fascinating story about how France is now under pressure to back future EU sanctions on Russia's nuclear industry, thanks to a diplomatic move by Germany. Can you tell us what's happening here? Okay, so the EU, give you some context, has 10 rounds of sanctions that it has levelled on Vladimir Putin, his closest associates, and, and the Russian economy in order to crack down and starve the Russian war machine of finance and influence. And the EU are working on an 11 package of sanctions, but it's getting increasingly harder for them to find a consensus amongst their 27 member states of what area to hit. So there's been a group called the Sanctionistas. Uh, they're made up of Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. The former countries that have lived under the Soviet umbrella are obviously the hardest that you can find when it comes to Russian issues. Um, then the likes of Hungary, Germany, um, and other countries have been less forward in pressing things like fossil fuels. Um, the EU currently has a ban and transition to phase out of uh, oil, gas and coal from Russia. But the next area of energy that Russia has influence in Europe is the nuclear sector. Rosatom, its state-owned state -owned nuclear firm, essentially, nuclear enterprise, is building a nuclear reactor for Hungary with using a Russian finance loan. But interestingly, Germany, which has shed its, closed down its nuclear plants now in the wake of Fukushima, it kept them on a little bit throughout the winter in order to get through any potential energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. But Germany has now come out and said it supports sanctions on Russia's nuclear sector. And it's not often that European politicians, unless they are truly, truly, truly peeved off, will come out and name another country, especially if they're an opponent to this kind of sanction. So while Hungary has vocally opposed hitting Russia's nuclear sector for various reasons, as I've elaborated, France has remained a far stealthier opponent to that plan. And so what we know is France is EDF, it's uh, it's, it's state-owned, state-run nuclear giant, has deals with Rosatom where they enrich fuel, re-enrich fuel, but they also dispose of spent nuclear fuel rods in Russia. So France is actually probably hidden behind Hungary to a certain degree in opposing the any countenance of EU nuclear sanctions on Russia. But now Germany, a member of its government, a guy called Sven Giegold, who is a, is a state secretary in the German finance ministry, 
a former MEP in, in Brussels and Strasbourg, is a member of the German Green Party, has essentially come out and said, look, like, we will get through this. We will beat the opposition of France, and he names France and other countries, by implementing transition periods and basically working out a diplomatic way of getting to a nuclear sanctions. But it's, it's fascinating for one, because one, France and Germany, they're not the best of friends at the moment, but they're not known for the public berating of each other, even when times are tough. Um, so Germany's come out and basically put its stall out and blamed France for any blockage in this policy. It's a policy that Vladimir Zelensky, the French president, has repeatedly called on EU countries to, to back. And so in these, we haven't got much in the way of detail, but I've spoken to a number of my sources in Brussels. And what we do have is a sort of sketch of a proposal that has been drawn up by Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And I'm, it's got the backing of Kiev. And I'm sure Germany will sign on this as well. And what they're, what they're talking of doing is they're looking at putting asset freezes and travel ban bans on Ross Atom's highest ranking officials. But what they also want to do is start banning the imports of Russian nuclear materials, whether it be components for reactors or the fuel itself. They haven't actually got that far yet. But that's what they're going to start doing and start proposing as the EU discusses its 11 package of sanctions. I've spoken to numerous people, and to, to quote one diplomat who's got a lot of skin in the game, from, we don't want to hurt those who really need it. Some countries have asked us not to kill their energy supplies. So, look, these countries, they are absolutely hardline, but they have learned over the course of negotiating 10 sanctions packages. They can't go full tonto and demand absolutely everything. They've got to work out the wriggle room. That was used with, that was used with Germany and Hungary and other people who, when we were looking at the, or the EU was looking at its oil ban from the EU, uh, for Russia and its gas bans. There's, there's wriggle rooms and you can implement the transition periods. That's, it's just quite fascinating that Germany, minus its nuclear sector, which is now turned off, has come out and put its flag in the ground. And it, I guess it just shows that there's a, a fair deal of tension at the moment between the French government and the German government over how they both deal with China and other various issues that are wider than the EU's kind of scope. But now Germany has kind of put its flag out and said, look, we're annoyed with what you've done in the past, and we're going we're gonna to dig a hole for you to get yourself into. And I'll stop there on that one. Thank you very much, Joe. Just one more story from you, if, if we may. You've written up this, another story from the Pentagon leaks. It gives us a fascinating glimpse into diplomacy between the UN Secretary-General and Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine. Can you tell us about this story? Yeah. So, yeah, one of the Pentagon's many leaks, I believe there's probably over 100 documents in circulation these days. How many more, we don't actually know. But what it does show is the US has been listening and monitoring, basically eavesdropping on the United Nations Secretary General and his top officials. And so one of the best things that we've learned from this eavesdropping is Antonio Gutierrez, the head of the UN, was, and in quotation marks, really pissed off with Vladimir Zelensky after the Ukrainian president ambushed him with a surprise military medal ceremony on a visit to Kyiv in March. So, so aides of Gutierrez accused Zelensky of springing this event on their boss, and the classified intelligence briefing, which was first reported by the Washington Post, said that we, we, this is analysis from a US official basically in reviewing the situation that while Gutierrez was basically brought into this medal ceremony where you ununiformed Ukrainian servicemen and women were given handed out hand out medals and it could actually be women only sorry because it was on International Women's Day there's this great and there's this great picture of Gutierrez basically looking stone faced he refuses to smile and there's a quote in this document that says Gutierrez emphasised that he made a point of not smiling the entire time through the medal ceremony. And like the Ukrainian president's office later released photographs and videos of the event, which basically implied that Gutierrez had congratulated Vladimir Zelensky's military personnel. And the reason that, that Gutierrez is so pissed off is because he has tried to paint himself as this neutral mediator between Moscow and Kyiv. 
he thinks this could have damaged his his sort of reputation as that neutral mediator who hasn't taken sides with one or the other. It's quoted that Mr Gutierrez later told his spokesman that he travelled to Kiev to assist Ukraine, but the Ukrainians, and in quotations, do everything to liquidate us. The aide, uh, Stefan Jurik, he later told the Washington Post that his boss was indeed unpleasantly surprised that a medal ceremony was added without consultation at the end of what would be, had been a very productive meeting in Kiev with Ukrainian leaders. But he did deny categorically that the term liquidation um, or liquidate had been used. But what the what this leaked briefing will do is add massive fuel to the fire, especially it's a, it's a kind of a long-held view in the US and a few other Western capitals that the US are most vocal on this, that Gutierrez has been undermining international campaigns to hold Russia accountable for the invasion of Ukraine. And there are people you can speak to, and they, they, they think that Gutierrez was too favourable in gifting concessions to Russia on alleviation from certain sanctions in order to get the grain deal over the line. They, they think he's probably too friendly with Moscow and Vladimir Putin which is not what we're saying, but that's just a, a view that many hold. And essentially that is probably why this document was put into place, was just basically to echo a, a long-held American thought that Gutierrez is probably too friendly with Moscow and stepping in the way of US-led or US-NATO, other kind of Western efforts to basically tell Russia that it's wrong for what it's doing. And they believe that Gutierrez could be muddying the waters of that and I will stop there on that one. Thank you very much Joe and Francis before that. Hamish to Breton Gordon can we come to you you're writing an op-ed for the Telegraph about the militarization of Russia and Russian society could you talk us through your argument and your piece? Yes no absolutely and um, I think that'll be up later today so I don't want to go and exactly replicate it but Basically, my contention is that that Russia is turning into a military dictatorship, which will ultimately lead to its total collapse. I think the last vestiges of democracy in Russia are burning on the fields of the Donbass. And democracy has never sat well with Putin, you know, the KGB officer. But he he knows the only hope of victory and prolonging his tenure as the last great czar is the total militarization of Russia. And Moscow seems to be descending into this military dictatorship very rapidly. Putin's United Russia Party is promoting its veterans of his war in Ukraine as candidates in regional elections, with the party's secretary general ordering that they give him the full support. And and the Kremlin's rhetoric frequently evokes the great patriotic war against Nazi Germany, either directly or through insinuation that Russia once again stands against fascism and Nazism. His militarization of its dictatorship, to me, is now a sure sign that cracks are appearing around his citadel. Earlier this week, the jailing of uh, the opposition figure, uh, Vladimir Karamuza, um, is tragic, but not unsurprising. And of course, you know, the, the likes of Navalny and all opposition figures and dissenters you know, ha- have disappeared off the stage. And then when we look at casualty rates and I had some very interesting discussions over the last few days in town, w- w- which I'll come on to a bit, about the military. You know, seven, there, there appears to be about 750,000 troops either mobilised or active in the Russian military at the moment. But the casualty rates are horrendous. and We've discussed them before. You know, US and UK government saying 220,000 dead or wounded you know, out of 750,000. You know, these are horrendous rates. But these are not the children of the Moscow elite. Uh, they're normal people who, who don't matter to the Kremlin. And I think Putin's effort to put veterans as politicians across you know, vast swathes of Russia could well be intended to silence any critics of what is a self-inflicted uh, genocide. So the only way for him to prolong this in any form is very much the militarization, getting rid of any democratic 
leanings in the country. But, you know, I, I think and others think that, um, you know, this is you know, the beginning of the end. So that that's generally the piece on militarization, much more detail in the piece later. Over. Thanks, Hamish. Um, just quickly on that, can we just dig into that slightly? I mean, you say this this could be the beginning of the end. Why? Why exactly? Why, why should it? Why should it follow that that this that the end is in sight? Well, I think it comes on to something that I also put in there. I haven't gone into detail. Um, really, the dysfunctionality of the Russian military, which I had not really considered in great detail, but it has been explained to me. I I sort of rather glibly said, well. It, you know, it can't be any more dysfunctional than the British military. And, you know, ex-soldiers like Don and myself, you know, we we have jocular um, fights with our friends, particularly in the Royal Air Force, but in the Navy as well. But, you know, I, I understand that um, it, there is completely dysfunction between between the three services and within the three services. And the cadre of regular personnel, particularly in the Army, I'll focus on the Army, it is very small. The majority of casualties, certainly in the early days, were the experience within this military. And you reported a story some weeks ago, I think it was, of you know special forces units pretty much def- decimated in the Russian military, being used for what we would call you know normal infantry tasks. So you have a majority of an army now that is conscripts who are these children of the East who have been recruited, given virtually no training. So actually, the, you have this vacuum between the, 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 the bayonets, if you like, who have very little training at the front, and Putin and his close advisors, senior military, and, and virtually nothing in between. And the only way he can keep this going is by militarization, enforcing enlistment, and stamping down on dissent wherever it might happen across the country. So that that is sort of what I'm getting at. Thanks, Hamish. Just two two things. One question from me. So what does you've set out your your thesis? I think very convincingly and eloquently. What does this mean for Ukraine and her friends and allies? Well, I I I think we are moving into the next stage of this war. It is. And we could, I don't think we, we're going to go into the offensive now and discuss it, but I think that this is something to consider. And, you know, on the one side, we have a, a military that is driven by the desire to save its country, high morale, and driven by the desire to get the Russians out of there, supported by Western weaponry, that they are now getting to grips with and now getting in numbers. You know, something like the Patriot, uh, as Don mentioned earlier on, hugely significant. You know, I I had a briefing on the Russian Air Force, which I I hadn't realised how limited they are. I mean, they've got fantastic amounts of top jets, but I understand that they can actually only do attacks in sort of onesies and twosies. They can't coordinate more than that. You know, they might have, lots and lots of these onesies and twosies, but they're going out, doing some, doing something and coming back. But there is a reticence, I understand, in the Russian Air Force to actually get up uh, over Ukraine and, and fight because, you know, they know their chances of getting shot down are pretty high. And now that the Patriots are there, you know, they, they can, you know, I, I don't know what the, the exact uh, operating orders for these Patriots are going to be. But as, as Dom said, you know, 150 kilometer range, you know, they, these things can be taken out quite far away. So I think, you know, when you look at it like that, you have a sophisticated, well-motivated army on one side. And whatever is being said in these leaks about lack of ammunition and missiles, et cetera, et cetera, that might well have been the point seven or eight weeks ago. And on the other side, you've got a conscript army in effect, has suffered 30% casualties of very poorly trained, poorly motivated and badly led soldiers who are static. I mean, we've discussed it before, the inability of the Russian forces to be able to conduct manoeuvre warfare, you know, I think has staggered all of us. But 
We know now that they cannot do it. They can sit and fight. And Putin, by militarizing, is just throwing more and more people into the meat grinder, a, a, a piece that I wrote last week. And that's all they can do. And I think there, there will come a point where this First World War army, the Russian army, fighting this 21st century Ukraine military is going to collapse. And by Putin really trying to save his own czarship, as it were, and not and nobody else around him being able to influence him to, you know, when things go badly, what we're all taught at Santos and elsewhere is, you know, if your plan's not working, have a think and come up with another plan, but do something. If you keep doing the same thing and it's failing, it will continue to fail. So that is the way that I am sort of looking at and suggesting that's where the the Red Army could crumble over the next few months. Thanks, Hamish. You mentioned you, you, you've been having quite a few interesting conversations. Anything more you can tell us, any more updates there before we go to Francis and Dom to come in on that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just say one I, you know, a very interesting chat. And, and I think you, the paper reported uh, Putin's visit to the front line the other day on the state of his health. And um, I think there is a view that, you know, that that is probably something that is becoming more significant. And perhaps, perhaps look at when you see him in pictures over the next few weeks, you know, how, how close he stands to people. So that the, the other bits and pieces, I think, you know, the cadre of experienced military was, was something I thought was hugely significant. The fact that, you know, all their special forces and others have been decimated and the inability of their air force, you know, this massive air force to do anything except sort of fairly basic operations. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. Francis or Don, would you like to come in on that before we go to our final thoughts? Thanks, David. Just one thing to pick up on what Hamish was saying. It was interesting him talking about the shift within Putin's regime and how it has taken on a more military character. And I just wanted to flag that historically when regimes do this and you associate your success, your popularity and the political acolytes around you with with the military, then you're really absolutely better hope that that you're successful militarily because it does facilitate a very, very rapid decline in popularity and usually an overthrow when things go wrong. And you can think of numerous comparisons. Uh, Hamish made a, a comparison there with Putin and the Tsar. Well, famously, Nicholas II, one of the things that brought him down uh, during the First World War was his decision, disastrous decision, to associate more closely with the Russian armed forces. He took sole command, effectively, or at least that he was the head of the armed forces during the disastrous campaigns that eventually led with his overthrow in February of 1917. And then, of course, the provisional government made similar mistakes in terms of its associating its regime with the failed offensives and Kerensky offensive, which then led to its overthrow by the Bolsheviks. So it's very dangerous. It was similar too, I think, with the Falklands War and the military junta there. Uh, they, they associated everything with their regime on success in the Falcons. And so when the the British managed to defeat them there, then, of course, the whole thing proved to be an utter disaster. And eventually they, too, were overthrown, something that actually Margaret Thatcher predicted and thought that would happen if uh, they were sort of tested, that the quite often these regimes are sort of paper tigers. So I, I just wanted to flag that, that it, in many ways it's logical that when you're fighting a war that you want to surround yourself with military figures, with military iconography and all of those things. But if things then start to go wrong on the battlefield, it can be very, very dangerous indeed for those individuals. And this is why, of course, what happens on the battlefield and the fate there of the Russian army will almost certainly have an impact on Putin's fate back home. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Thank you, Dom, Francis, Joe and Hamish for your time today. Can I go to your final thoughts? Dom, would you like to go first? Thanks, David. I'll just finish with a slight riff on... um what Hamish was just saying a moment ago about how this is, even though we talk about the, the st- certain stalemate at the moment in the Donbass as World War One-like, and that is because it's positional and very highly attritional, that's because that's the way that Russia is fighting and Ukraine is choosing to fight. The counteroffensive is unlikely to be an up-and-atom-lads type affair. And I just made the point that just because it is 
we we compare it to World War One doesn't mean that it's it's going to remain like this for forever because of course at the end of the First World War and you know, the Hundred Day Campaign right at the very end I mean that was manoeuvrous that was that was when tanks and and everything started to to work together so if Russia sticks to this and if it, if it's all Russia is conceptually able to do a very positional defence then then that can be beaten. It takes brains, it takes willpower and yes, a certain amount of blood, but it can be defeated with, with a, the right application of military power. So I don't think we should, we should be too concerned that it is just at the moment seems to be coming fixed in, in trench lines because they can be defeated. They were defeated 100 years ago. They can be defeated now. So you know, we shouldn't read too much into it. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe Barnes. Well, then, yeah, to end today, I'm going to throw forward to Friday when the Ramstein Group, this US-led effort of around 54 Western countries, get together to talk about what military aid they can give to Ukraine and how to get it to Ukraine. They're meeting at Ramstein, the US airbase in Germany, on Friday, and it looks like so. Just look, me and Dom sat through this Western official briefing yesterday, and the Western official said, "Look." The lack of Russian kind of long-range missile attacks has given Ukraine an opportunity to bolster its um, supplies to basically build, start building a stockpile of air defense systems, but uh, missiles. But we do know that sort of these the S three hundreds, as Dom alluded to, the other various uh, book systems, the Soviet-made systems, they are finite because they are made by Russia, and Russia isn't going to replace Ukraine stocks. Obviously, Ukraine can go to other countries that operate these systems but again they are finite and many of them are still friendly with russia so wouldn't want to be seen donating those weapons to ukraine so as we go into friday i'd expect and i think we're seeing it already sort of ukrainian officials alexei reznikov the defense minister will start going to his western allies to ukraine's western allies look we need more 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 when it comes to air defense systems and the ammunition that is fired from them. And they will point to a bit of the... Pen- so some information from the Pentagon leaks that suggested that Ukraine, by sort of this time next month, I think it was the tw- between the 23rd and the 25th of May, would not have enough systems and air defence ammunition to decide whether it could defend its troops on the front line or its cities. So... They are going to really use that as their own ammunition. People use that leak as its own ammunition to secure more ammunition from its Western allies to protect its skies. And I think that's going to be a big focus. Um, rather than talk of tanks and jets, we'll revert back to sort of more simplified, give us air defence systems when they meet on Friday. And I'll stop there. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Joe. Francis Dernley, can I come to you for your very final thoughts? Thanks, David. Just to end today, I wanted to flag an important piece in The Guardian, one of the most detailed first-hand accounts of atrocities committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. It's an extended interview with Alexei Savichev, 49. He's a former Russian convict recruited by Wagner last September. And he talks about participating in summary executions of Ukrainian prisoners of war during his six months of fighting in eastern Ukraine. Some of the quotations from it are pretty harrowing, to be frank, but I think it's important that we draw attention to them. So he describes how we were told not to take any prisoners and would just shoot them on the spot. He cites one instance in Solodar last autumn where he participated in the killings of 20 Ukrainian soldiers who were surrounded. He says, we sprayed them with our bullets. It is war and I do not regret a single thing I did there. If I could... I would go back. There's another episode he describes with other Wagner fighters. He killed several dozen apparently injured Ukrainian POWs by tossing grenades into a ditch where they were held near the city of Bakhmut in January. He says we would torture soldiers too. There weren't any rules. Now the original source for this story is a website by a rights group. I think the website is gulagu.net and he appeared in an original interview alongside a former Wagner fighter who said he'd also killed civilians, including children, during the Battle of Bakhmut. And, I mean, I hesitate to read this. It's so horrific. But um, I think it's, as I say, important that we do raise it. He says, 
he describes an incident where a group of people who'd been taking shelter in the basement of a nine-floor block of flats in Bakhmut, including a young girl who was screaming, and he says, she was screaming, she was a little kid, she was five or six, and I shot her, a kill shot. I wasn't allowed to let anyone out, you understand. So, egregious war crimes, of course, these are denied very much by the Wagner group. Yegevni Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, has said that the accounts of these two soldiers is a flagrant lie, and the Wagner fighters have never touched and do not touch children. But nonetheless, there are many people this morning who are talking about that this is just further evidence of the atrocities that have been committed by Wagner, a group, after all, that send hammers to people as their calling card. And it's there are some other insights, I should add, in the piece, talking about how these prisoners were recruited, talks about how uh, there are an estimated 100 prisoners, only 21 returned alive from their posting and generally has quite a lot of insights on these things but the most important side of it is of course this horrific war crimes evidence that will I'm sure be vital for future trials but also reminds us now as to the brutality of the war that is being waged by Russian forces in Ukraine it should really be a front page story everywhere and but the tragedy is is that it's become just something that is seemingly we've become used to in this horrific war but nonetheless I thought it was important to raise this as one of the most egregious examples and there are many now of the kind of atrocities that are being committed on a daily basis in Ukraine Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1 pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. 